The teaching text this morning is excerpts from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Would you just pause in prayer for a moment with me? Father, there's a line in that text that is just so startling. It is that you loved Jesus before the foundation of the world. That you existed in perfect love together. That love was the the unifying trait of the Trinity. God, it's hard for us to even fathom outside of our time and space. It's hard to even think of what that would have been like Things completely uncreated, no need to create, your being deeply satisfied with each other, so unified in love that you were one. God, we confess as we just look around our world, the nation we're in and the world we live in, that the brokenness and and the division and the villainizing of one person against another is just staggering. And we confess that what we see around us is not what you intended at the beginning of creation. We ask that by your Spirit, And by us experiencing your love, you will lead us step by step back to what you intend. 
Come and do it even today as we listen to your word, as we seek you, as we long for you, we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, eavesdropping is a lot of fun on the streets of New York City. I've heard some, some in- incredible lines, one-liners put out there. Here is a mix of them, some that we've heard ourselves and some that someone else has heard of that I just kind of put down, so I don't take credit for all of them. Um, this, this was uh, overheard here in, in Park Slope, as, uh, as you would um, be aware of when you hear it. I haven't been to Manhattan in years. I have no reason to go. Uh, we heard a, a mom with about a five or six-year-old daughter who was uh, spectacularly tantruming on the sidewalk in front of everybody. Um, a mom say to her daughter, okay, okay, would you feel better if I got you some sushi? <laughs> Overheard on the subway, we're busy this weekend. We're going to Greg's lightning party, the other person. What is a lightning party? Well, uh, it's celebrating one year since Greg was struck by lightning. Uh, Another two people on the subway, what does he do? Cocaine. Oh no, I meant for work. Just the average subway conversation, right? Um, Just overheard, no judgment, just literally observed. Mom to daughter on the street, do you want to stop? Uh, Do you want to stop to spit on Trump Trump Tower or go straight home? Yeah, there's a little bit of a, ooh. Um, A mom to a four-year-old walking in Washington Square Park in Manhattan. Joshua, your sense of urgency is non-existing. Are you even a New Yorker? This is fun and amusing, but uh, today I want to focus on a little bit of an eavesdrop that is a little bit more life-changing. This is us eavesdropping onto a prayer. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but it is a very revealing thing to pray with someone. It's a very sacred thing. Eugene Peterson says, uh, the, the biggest job of a pastor is to teach people to pray. And to listen to someone's prayer is one of the greatest privileges that I can imagine. Because it is them laying bare their heart before their creator in an attempt to connect, to be relational, to to know and to be known in a deeply spiritual way. And therefore, this prayer really matters. We get to eavesdrop on the longest prayer recorded by uh, Jesus, and just uh, it's, a, it's a prayer that, that was said just before he goes to the cross. It's, it's the prayer of kind of relent, saying, okay, I've done what I need to do. This is what I came to do. God, come and do this. And then he took his steps towards what he knew would be his death. And this, this moment is recorded very intentionally because Jesus wanted his disciples to hear his prayer. And so it would do us well to pay attention to this particular prayer. The first thing I want to just bring out, and I'm going to bring a few things out and then kind of bring it down to the mission that Jesus was commending us to after he had done everything he needed to do 
It's like, what are we supposed to be, be busy with? What is, what is the most important things that we should be thinking of and giving our time and attention to certainly would be found in this last desire recorded, this request of Jesus our Savior to his Father. And if you are maybe far from God or, or you're skeptical about who God is or about what kind of God he is, I want to invite you to take a risk and look at this prayer and redefine what you think about God according to what would be Jesus' most intimate moments spilled over from his heart. This isn't the perfectly curated sermon that Jesus gave that would make, him, would make him look good and get him fame. This is just his heart poured out to the Father. The first thing that's worth notice, noticing is he says this, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ to whom you have sent. Now, a, a, a quick aside, every time John in his epistle, John is making a case that Jesus is who he says he was. John is making a case that, that Jesus is uh, true, that he is the fulfillment of all of Scripture, and he does this by uh, c- citing throughout the book seven signs that Jesus did that, that pointed, miraculous signs, that pointed that, to the fact that he was the fulfillment of everything that the Israelites were looking for in a savior, that he had the ability to do everything that he said he was. And seven I am statements where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am uh, the good shepherd. And he says, this is who I am, but I'm not just claiming something. I'm gonna prove to you through miraculous signs that I am, what I say I am and who I really am is exactly true. So John is literally almost like a lawyer making a case throughout the whole book uh, of who Jesus was. And in the end of the book, he says this. This is his objective. He says, I write this so that you may believe. And then he says, but that's not the goal. The goal is so that you may have life. I write this so that you may believe, so that you may have life. I think many times, pastors and churches, I confess, I often use the pulpit as my own confessional, so forgive me for that. Um, You're the priests uh, with me. But I confess that pastors take that first part. I want you to believe because the more you believe, the more I get bums in seats, the more I get people who follow me and read my books, and therefore, I'm successful and I'm climbing the ladder that I'm supposed to climb. And the point of John's uh, case that he makes is not just belief as an end, but belief leads us to the actual life that God has for us. True, abundant, fruitful, amazing life. And his entire premise is that it doesn't start one day in heaven, it starts now. And so when he says eternal life, he means, yes, eternity and forever and heaven as we think it's going to be or understand it to be, but he's actually saying in eternal life, he means the life of the kingdom that is available to us now. And he over and over says that when he, in John 10, 10 says, I, Jesus, he quotes Jesus saying, I came to give life and life to the full. So Jesus came to bring us that life. He brought it to earth. And and when we read the the prayer that Jesus teaches them to pray, he says, God, your kingdom come on earth. There's an expectation for life on earth to display something of the beauty of the nature of our God. And so here when he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, 
I don't think we have done well at defining eternal life like that. I think we've done well to define it as you pray the right prayer, you step into the right thing, you do the right things, you act in a moral way, and, and slowly but surely you will access then the eternal life. And Jesus comes and says there is a different way to define what amazing, beautiful life is, and it is defined relationally. It's defined by the intimacy that you have with your Creator. It's defined and demonstrated by the fact that we grow closer to our Heavenly Father, that we interact with our Heavenly Father, that we hear our Heavenly Father's voice, that we expect Him to be with us, to meet us in our time of need. This is opposed to moralism. This is opposed to institutionalism where you gain eternal life by being part of a church. It doesn't exist. That you gain eternal life by taking communion. It's not true. It's a gift given to us. But nothing uh, of salvation happens in the act of taking the, the bread and the cup. Or at least not according to Scripture as we know. Um. Now, if you have kids, which uh, most of you do, um, or many of you do, uh, you'd understand that things in a home and a family definitely don't go always the way that we plan. That every morning I get up and I'm like, I'm going to be the most gracious, kind, loving dad today. And then by the end of the day, this happens. There's a picture on the screen at the end of last week's Sunday. I think there'll be, yeah, there it is. That's my daughter. Uh, she's an absolute joy to me. And let me describe this. This is a picture uh, at the end of a day where Lisa had spent the whole day working, so the kids were with me all the time, and we were at church, and we n negotiated subways and, and got home at about nine at night, and here we are. And uh, she put uh, a pair of uh, undies on her head. She strapped uh, a, a bobby, I don't know what you call those things, but a piece of cardboard and a paper hanging in front of, of her eyes. This is genius because this is her attempt at creating uh, uh, her own reminder system. <laughs> so she, there was something so important that she could not forget that she had to build something to stick it in front of her eyes so she would not be able to look past it. Uh, I think the point is not her genius, uh, though that is amusing. The point is what she was trying to remind herself of. And this is what it said on that little card. <laughs> it had a picture of a very angry face, and it said, remember not to talk to dad until he is kind to you. <laughs> yeah, if your heart breaks, I promise you mine broke more. If you feel pain, I felt more. <laughs> it was the end of a day that was really hard and really rough. I know you never have those. And my daughter, by grace, uh, was able to show me kind of how that day ended for me. I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to have this down. But it also points to the fact that my kids drive me crazy sometimes, and they know it. I was disappointed with me. I was disappointed with them. It was a rough day. And the amazing thing uh, about my relationship with them is no matter how rough those days get, there's not a day that I, that, that I could in any part of my imagination or ever in my experience stop 
loving them. There's not a day, no matter how brutal it was, that when their heads are on those pillows and I walk into their room when they're sleeping, my heart just bleeds with love and desire and hope and prayer over them. And no matter how hard the day was, there's not a single day that I did not have something to be grateful of in them and enjoy them and laugh. Yeah, that was rough. We'll start again tomorrow. And yet, I think day after day, we define our relationship with the Father in ways about how we perform. We, we define the way that God looks at us or whether we connect with Him or go to Him absolutely in the way of how things went. That His love is somehow altered either by our great performance or by our lack of performance. And there are moments that we just forget about His love and don't even engage. All of them are always loved. And Jesus goes into the essence in this sense, and this is what I want to get to, in the credibility of our witness, the credibility of who we are as people, as a church, has been radically diminished in our world. I don't know if you feel that, but I feel that. As a pastor, I have to negotiate uh, not just the idea that uh, I meet a stranger or I meet someone um, and I don't, I don't just have to negotiate the moment or somewhere along the line that they find out I'm a Christian and they have some kind of impression of what Christianity is. Because let's be honest, this is not the South or, or a place where uh, that's in the Bible Belt where, where there's a certain life that's the norm. Uh, to, to live in New York City as a believer is kind of still extraordinary. It's, it's still out of the norm. And so when that moment comes, I have to mentally prepare for what they think about me as a Christian. I have the added pressure of uh, ha having to somehow uh, hide that I'm a pastor because, man, let's just take it a small step at a time. And so uh, in order to do that, I confess, sometimes I go, yeah, I, um, like, I'm a life coach. <laughs> I do that. I, it's not a lie. Uh, or, or even spiritual director. That, that, that just kind of lands in, in a very cool kind of space in New York City. And so it's way better than saying I'm a pastor. And it's not that I want to deceive. It is that our impression, the impression of believers, of Christianity, has caused, unfortunately, a really, really bad taste in the mouth of our culture. Uh, I might have mentioned this the last time I was here, but we had this encounter. Lisa, uh, she works in a restaurant in Manhattan, and there was a celebrity Christian couple that came into the restaurant. And all her coworkers are different levels of unbelieving, um, unchurched, and against church. And so she's negotiating that the whole time. But this Christian couple, Christian celebrity couple came in. They're VIPs. They were treated very, they were supposed to be treated really, really well. And when she was, she takes care of people in the restaurant and guest relations. And when she went to some of the people who were supposed to engage with this couple, some of the head chefs, the, the people with power in the restaurant, their response was, oh, no, 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 no. They're Christian church people. They hate us. And it broke Lisa's heart. And it broke my heart. Because there is this defining trait of Christianity that says, those Christians, they hate fill in the blank. And so Jesus says this in verse 20. 
I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That means he's praying literally for us sitting in this room today. If you uh, call yourself a follower of Jesus, that they may be one. I pray for all who would come that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I give to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and I loved them as you loved me. The credibility and the witness of the Christian church lies in this one distinctive that Jesus prays for, the unity. And remember what he prayed for, uh, what, what he said to his father, he says, before the foundation of the world, you loved me. And that was glorious. Now he's saying, as you loved me and I loved them, I pray that they would be one in love the way that we are one in love. Sometimes uh, we work towards unity through trying to get theological unity. And if you are a part of any church conversation of our day, you know that is an absolute hopeless cause. Because people are fighting. The, the Calvinists believe the Arminianists are going to hell because they, they believe in works. The Arminianists uh, believe the Calvinists have got the whole grace thing completely messed up and they don't understand what's going on. And they villainize each other. And those who believe women should be in ministry are on the one side and those who believe they shouldn't are on the other side. And those uh, who call themselves uh, 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 Christians and Democrats are literally looked at by the other side going, you cannot be a Christian and a Democrat in the same sentence. And those who are Democrats look to the red side and go, uh, there is no way, absolutely no way that you could have voted uh, the way that you voted and call yourself a Christian. And over and over and over we work really, really hard to make sure that the other person and the other side is villainized. I always say to any of my friends in church who are doing something, a worship leader, a preacher, you need to work like an Armenianist, but you need to sleep like a Calvinist. Sleep as if you can't do anything about it, but work as if it's all up to you, and trust that the Father will do what He's supposed to do. Uh, N.T. Wright says this, so this is kind of how he unpacks our, our, our current conundrum. He says, we, we have platonized our eschatology, I'll explain this in a moment, then because of that we have moralized our anthropology, and because of that we have paganized our soteriology. What he means is this, we have platonized, we've taken a platonic view of the eschatology, the end of time, and therefore we have said there is a heaven that is waiting for us. And because we have an idea that there is a heaven that is waiting for us, we moralize our humanness in the fact that we now have to work to get to that heaven. And if we've done enough, we, we, we'll get there. If you come to church uh, on a holiday weekend, you get bonus points. <laughs> Good for you. And because we've done that, we have paganized the way that we find salvation. We now think of getting what we desire, getting our deepest longings fulfilled, getting our hopes met. We now think of it in a way that the pagan world thinks, the, the unchurched world, in that there is uh, basically about what you do will get you what you deserve. 
We live like that perpetually. This is a a mission statement in our church that we have reworked, and we've done it very intentionally. I'm going to use it as an example because it's so completely unsexy. Here's my problem with church. (laughs) I go again. Sorry. Forgive me. My problem with church is we try really, really, really hard to distinguish ourselves from other churches in order to gain some sense of a competitive advantage. We are really just running businesses. The prayer that Jesus prays is kind of like, hey, you should all look the same. And I wonder if we spend too much time thinking about how great our church is and how distinct we are and what we're supposed to do and our branding and, and uh, how our services are going to be different and what, uh, rather than going, what does it look like to honor what Jesus asked his father would happen in us? And so our, our mission statement, uh, we changed it and, and we changed it for very intent. I'll explain it to you. One, we say, by the power, of, I should have put it up there, I didn't, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's how it starts. We, we just confess there's nothing we're going to do, there's no mission we can go on that doesn't start with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we have very zhuzhi mission statements. I've done it too much in my life where I go, this is what we're going to do. Good luck, because I'm not that good. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we do want to join God in the renewal of the person, the church, and the world, those three categories I believe it has to start with the person in the heart. I also believe the church has to be renewed because if the church is not renewed, we don't become the display of the glory of God for the world who needs to see. And if the church is not renewed, then definitely the world that we live in cannot be renewed itself. But then it ends with this, through the transformational love of Jesus. Because we could have that exact same statement And just end it there. And we could create a bunch of different constructs by which we're going to see our mission fulfilled. We want to see our mission fulfilled by the amazing preaching, clear doctrine of the Word of God. Not bad. We want to see our mission fulfilled by creating an amazing moral uh, community so that people from the outside go, Oh, if I act this way, then I can get in. And we can create a a, a dynamic system of desire to be part of an amazing community. We can do our mission by creating uh, like dangling carrots in front of people and say, just it will be better if you do this. And we, I just know my own capacity to try to manipulate people to do what I think they should be doing rather than trusting that when someone experiences the love of Jesus, they cannot be the same after that encounter. So my question is this, how many of us can point to at least one encounter in the last month that we can say, that moment displayed and had me experience the love of God in a, in a noticeable way. It doesn't even have to be sensational, a noticeable way. So John opposes these three things by saying eternal life is not one time, but it is now. He says that those who know the Father are the ones who experience eternal life, not a moralistic way of doing things right. And thirdly, that it is only in me, in Jesus, that you can gain access to this life. Completely different. So the mission of Jesus was to restore, crea- uh, to restore creation and the original relational construct, the fabric of that existence was love. His mission, for God so loved the world that he gave, his mission was to bring the love of the Father to earth, to flood 
the streets that we walk with the love of God. That was his mission. And he's praying that we would continue his mission. He's praying that we would take up that mantle and run with it. It's amazing that he, he, he's not praying for other kinds of oneness that we, that we hope for. But that it's this love, this distinctive. So one, the distinctive is, this is how, John says it in another place, this is how they will know that you are my disciples. Now, a quick word on discipleship. It's a term uh, that's, that's more a being term than a doing term. And we've made it into a doing term. And there is doing to it. But it's way, way, way more a being term. A disciple is someone who is like his mentor, his discipler, his father. You prayed that prayer earlier. We delight in showing the Father's traits. So the distinctive characteristics of God's people, this is what Jesus says. This is how they, the world, will know that you are my disciples. Pete Scazzaro, who wrote uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, worth reading, says, this is the narrative that we live by. Be popular, be great, be successful, and avoid suffering and pain. He says those are the rules that we engage with day after day as we wake up, as we manage our social media, as we do our work. It's a way of being that the world is asking us to do. And Jesus says, no, there is a way of being that, my, that, that distinguishes my disciples from every other person on the planet. And it is this. There, remember, this is how they will know that you are like me, my disciples. This is how they will know that you are like me. That you love one another. My, my, everything in me wants to, in, in that gap, insert, that you get the answers right. That your theology is superior. That your services are amazing and good. That the worship is just kind of out of this world. No, no. This is the distinctive characteristic of my people that you love. Not that you're pro-life. Not that you hold a 4.5 Calvinistic position and can recite tulip. Not that your theology is faultless. In fact, Dallas Willard, I just love that guy. He, he passed away a little while ago. He, keeps, he just kept us grounded. He was like, man, the people who are mostly right are the worst people to be around. No one wants to sit next to the guy who's always right. You can be right and an absolute jerk. This is how they will know that you are like me. Two, he says, I give you a new command. You celebrated not too long ago, Maundy Thursday. Maundy Thursday literally means a commandment, a mandate that was given on that Thursday. And Jesus, on that night, when he washed the disciples' feet, he, he, he leads to this climax. And he says, I now, after everything that you've seen, you've, you know the Torah, you know, you know the rules, you know how to live. I give you a new commandment. Listen carefully, that you love one another. He could have said anything in that moment as he prepares for death, as he washes their feet, as he commissions them for the journey ahead, and he chooses to say this, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. So it's a distinctive for us 
a way to live, but a new command, a new mandate that we were given was to love one another. And then a new way to live out this command was given by Jesus, not just in his description, but in his example. And that was that greater love has no person than laying down their life for a friend. I think, and, and I don't want to take it too far. You, you totally can criticize me for this. I'm okay. I, I'm a big boy. I can take it, uh, I think. Maybe let's not try. Um, but I, I think what we do when, when, we, when we say greater love has no person, we take it upon ourselves that that love looks like we, we have to correct people. We have to tell them how they're wrong and what is right. I don't think that's, that's wrong, but I also think that people will only listen to us if they've seen how we actually love them. And so unless we are day after day laying down our lives for our community, for, uh, for the people around us, unless we're paying the price literally for our government, for those who are in authority over us, unless we're doing that, we have no voice to speak to them. We have no voice to say, there is a better way. And we really are really, really, really good at telling people how to live and what to do. And so Jesus showed us a new way. Greater love has no, no one than laying down their life for, for the friend. And Jesus didn't just say that to us to go and live out, but he lived it. He showed it. He demonstrated it to us. And so we are supposed to have this mission of love, a radical loving community. Firstly, receiving the love of God. If we are not basking in the love that he has for us, if we cannot week after week recite the encounters we have where in the tiniest little things we experience the love of God, whether it was listening to birds tweeting uh, as, as the, as, as the uh, the sun rises, whether it's seeing uh, his love through a correction that came from my daughter that I needed and him going, David, something's wrong and this is a picture of what's wrong. Can you, can, can you pay attention to this? Or, or whether it's just some encounter with another person or whether it's a scripture that you read that just kind of speaks to your heart. The point is you cannot just know about the love of God. You have to experience it. You have to experience it. And the best example that I've used so many times, and you've heard it a few times, was when my son was four, I went to, to him at night and I said, boy, you know I love you. I don't know why I said it that way, but I said, boy, you know I love you, right? And he said, yes, dad, I do know, but could you tell me every day in, in, just in case I forget? And I say that because I think that is the true condition of our hearts. Day after day, we live in a way that we forget the love of God. But then we love him with all our being. We give him all our life. We respond to this love by giving our finances, our sexuality, our relationships, our parenting. All of those things we hold on to so carefully when we are affected by the love of God mean nothing. And we just kind of go, God, it's yours. Whatever you choose for me, I'm, I, I'm, I trust you because I know you love me. Then the debate about all these things become almost faultless. It's like the spirit of God is at work in us. And then lastly, we have to live in a way that loves others, outsiders, other people outside of the church. We have names for them. We, we, we have names for them in such a way that we dehumanize them. They just become targets. No, just love them because they carry the image of God. Broken, just like yours, but they carry the image of God. This is one of my favorite quotes by Tim Keller about how our churches do not necessarily display the way of Jesus. 
He says this, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind outsiders Jesus attracted, the kind, sorry, the kind of outsiders that Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and the liberated, the broken and the marginal, they avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus declared. That's hard to hear. But we do build our churches around the ways in which we can attract people, and the people who come are those who are more definitively Christian. There's a world out there that longs to experience the love of God. And it is our mission, through Jesus' commissioning, it is our mission to take his love, to go out into the streets, and it's as simple as this. I wish I could do more on this topic. Being great neighbors. I, I think it's as simple as that. I think it's taking the burden of the government because we have the system of saying, oh yeah, the government must fix this and going, no, we are the people in our neighborhood to see the kingdom of God come. How can we love people? How can we take the burden off off our city who has to do a bunch of stuff and let's care for the widows and the orphans? Let's take it upon us to care for the, the person next door to me who irritates me because they play their music too loud. There's just so much that we need to do, but it has to start with the gospel, that we are loved as we are. And good old Mr. Rogers said this. I think it's absolutely true. He says, anyone can change if they are first loved exactly as they are. And that is the gospel in a sentence. Jesus coming to love those who crucified him. Just love them as they are. And when people see that kind of love, something happens. And so this morning, if you could just meditate on this for a moment, you can close your eyes, you can focus somehow, but but I want you to hear this. That just as you are, without anything that you have done or need to do or or, or should do or in any failure of yours or any great success of yours, you are absolutely fully loved because the act of love of Jesus on the cross cannot be undone, it cannot, cannot be unsaid, it cannot be uh, changed, and that was done forever and for always. That de- declaration that he loves us the way that we are, even praying for us to the Father, we are absolutely fully loved totally fully loved. That means a few things. One, you really have nothing to fear. That whatever fears are in your heart can, can come into opposition with perfect love that breaks down the fear that's in us. You also have nothing to hide because there's nothing that you can reveal that can change the love. It's already done. It's already spoken. The hostility has already been diffused. Therefore, 
you are free, literally free. You've been given the permission to make mistakes, to risk, to try, to fail, but to live in a place where the source of our life is love. Anyone can change if they are first loved as they are. This is the gospel, that we are loved. And so this morning, uh, there is communion table set up. And if that's a response that you would like to take by coming and saying, Jesus, thank you that by virtue of your body broken for us and your blood shed for us, I am loved and it cannot be undone. And every week that I come and do this over and over and over and over again, I remind myself of your love for me. If it is to come and just kind of be on these mats behind me, on these carpets, to just sit in the silence, to sit and be without doing, to sit without having to make something happen, then feel free. If you feel like you need prayer, there will be people up here on the front that, that would pray over you. But, but if nothing else today, receive the voice of the Father, just as He spoke over His Son, this is my Son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. Jesus literally asks the Father that the love that He received from the Father would be poured out to us. And that is my prayer today. I'm going to pray it, and then when you're ready, please come up and respond as you feel appropriate. Jesus, You have come to show show us the love that the Father poured out. And You've shown it to us in a way that cannot be taken back. It cannot be reversed. It cannot be undone. And today and every day you speak over us that we are loved because every day our hearts need to hear it. There is not a day in my life, God, that I do not need to hear that I am loved by the Father and that nothing can change that. May today be one of those days for many people here, God. And if that is an idea that is just so, so foreign to you, if if receiving love is the hardest part of your existence, if you just have not had people pouring love into your life, if you do not know what it takes to just be loved, then we'd love to pray with you and people will pray with you up front here. But as you ponder on that, be ready to come and receive the love of God who Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that was that was shed for you. And there was no greater act that he could do to show his love than this act represented in the bread and the cup. So as you come now, receive the affirmation, the declaration, the shouting over your life that you are loved. Come whenever you are ready.